0: And before I begin, when Raymond said that it was my hundredth sermon and someone else came to me, I won't give up who, um, someone counts, of all things that someone would ever do is count the number of my sermons. Um, some of you, about half the church, are probably thinking, that's all? And the other half is probably thinking, really, that's a lot of number sermon that you've been preaching. But either way, I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for your, um, your, your dealing with a, a new pastor who to a new city, to a new church. Um, and i try to come and do the best I can, and thank you for dealing with me when I don't do the best today, best job, so I appreciate that. A um, 100 is a lot, um, hopefully there are many hundreds more, and so I'm grateful for you and um, all the encouragement that you guys have given. Um, hopefully that won't be a trend every 50 or 100, I don't know what that would be, that someone has to announce that to the church, but, um, anyway, well, about 10 years ago, a pastor wrote a book called They Like Jesus But Not the Church. In it, the pastor showed how millennials, people who are late 30s, maybe right around 40 and younger, how they're not connecting with the church as their parents did. They still seem to be spiritual, spending time reading the Bible and and with one another. They, They may even listen to podcasts or watch sermons online, but they've rejected the gathering of the local assembly. And listen long enough to a group of young Christians, and you'll hear this too. You'll hear this over and over again. They have no problem with Jesus. They don't have any problem with his rules. But they got a problem with the local church. Maybe it's youthful rebellion against authority. Maybe that drives the distaste of anything with structure or a hierarchy. Maybe it's the perception of rules that reminds them of life in elementary school. Whatever the cause may be, I think the author is correct. I think there is a serious dislike of the church by people who claim to be followers of Christ. But I'm going to make this case this morning, as best I can, that a Christian, an obedient Christian, a follower of Christ, cannot say that you love Jesus and yet divorce yourself from the bride of Christ. That the local church has been given to us for our good, for God's glory, to build us up, to encourage us, so that we can grow in our faith, that we can be challenged when people disagree with us, that we can be motivated to grow and expand our understanding of God and His Word and His world. Done in the local church. Maybe this is you. Maybe you've given church another try. Maybe you're kind of that last thread that's holding you there and you're about ready to to break apart. Maybe you've been hurt in a church before, as many of us have. Maybe you've witnessed a, a pastor or a staff member or a leader do unethical or sinful things. This message is for you, but it's also for those of you who haven't given up on the church and you can't understand why you haven't. There are many who have, not here, not just here, but all over. I I talked to a pastor the other day in Baltimore. He works for the North American Mission Board, a group that we support with our our giving through the Southern Baptist Convention. And And I explained, I said, hey, man, I don't know what we're doing right now. I have no idea what's going on in our church. He said, Ryan, every day I speak with multiple pastors who have the exact same story as you. So it's not just us. People have given up on the church. People have said, I don't need the local church. I can worship God on my own. I can do everything by myself and I don't need to sit here on a Sunday morning. I can watch it on home. I can do it on my own. This message is for you if you think that way. If you notice, we're pausing in our study of 1 Corinthians, which also talks about the local church, but we're, we're pausing for a few weeks to examine The idea of the local gathering and this morning there'll be people all over the world who are not understanding the need for what we're doing right now some people still come maybe they're trying to appease their spouse or or maybe they're coming because their mom or dad makes them come maybe they're trying to uh, uh, appeal to somebody else in the church and try to connect with them so they continue to come to church but it's really never a bond Some people are coming because they're scared of what could happen if they were to die. And just in case, if the Bible is, you know, true. Whatever your thoughts are on the nature and the purpose of the church, let God's word be your guide through this. Don't just listen to me. Don't just take what I say as the truth. Examine what I say in light of what you see in scripture. Let God's word penetrate your heart to show you what Maybe you thought about the church might have been wrong. My goodness, I look at my own life and I see 5, 10, 15 years ago how wrong I was about what the local church's purpose is. So this message begins a four-week study of the church. We're pausing First Corinthians and we're going into a doctrinal study. We normally don't do this, but once a year about we talk about what the local church is just as a healthy reminder. And the truth is most of us don't think about this very often. Outside of guys who live and breathe this stuff, most of you don't sit at home thinking, huh, I wonder about the doctrine of the local church. We generally don't do that, so this is why it's exciting for me to come and to preach this message. In the coming weeks we'll look at what a healthy church looks like and why membership matters. And it's my hope that this study will ignite something inside of you to see that this is beyond just a Sunday morning ritual. That the local church is is what we do, it's who we are, it's it's why we gather, It's, it's our family. And the reality is, and I've said this before, you as believers and members of this church, I am closer to you than I am my own blood family that don't know Christ. And so this matters. This is for our edification, for our good and our growth. But before we do any of that, let's define what church is. We often speak to people and we use the same words. We speak the same language, but we often mean very different things, so conversations tend to not go anywhere. So what are some definitions of church? Because if we say church, there's a bunch of different ways to, to view this. First, many would say that the church is a building. You drive by and you're with a friend, and you say, well, that's my church, that building. And so what we do on Sunday morning is we come into the church building and we worship. But there are other definitions. The term could refer to anybody who's ever been a Christian. Now this is popular to say for those who have given up on the idea of the local assembly. They say, well, we are the church. The church is every Christian from all time. So we are the church, so we don't need to go to church. This is the argument that you'll hear made by people who've given up on the church, who've left and who've never come back. I do believe that both of those are accurate in the right statement that the church is the body of Christ forever. I I agree with that. But the definition in the New Testament that's used the most, and this is what I use the most, is speaking about a local gathering of Christians. Believers who have covenanted with one another to serve, protect, and grow each other in the congregation. This definition that I'm using is the one that's most used in the New Testament. In fact, whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, it's generally translated from the Greek word ecclesia. You've heard that ecclesiastes. It's kind of a predecessor for that. Or if you study the doctrine of the church, it's ecclesiology. It's the study of the church. And that word is used in the New Testament to describe what we're doing right now. The gathering of believers from all different walks of life and ages and ethnicities and backgrounds coming together to unite under the banner of the gospel. And in fact, more than 95% of the time in the New Testament when that word is used, ecclesia, in the Greek, more than 95% of the time it's talking about a local gathered assembly of believers. Not the universal church, not a building. It's talking about the gathered people. So this is important to remember. And we're going to see over this week and the next three after this, we're going to see how the local church is essential to the spread of the gospel message and how God works with individuals that are part of a bigger picture, a bigger group of people to accomplish his goals and to bring himself glory. So we're going to jump around in scripture a little bit. It's not normally what I do, but I hope that this is helpful for you. So... After those definitions, and just to explain what what definition I'm working with, let's think about how people view the church. Think about what the church is to most people outside of the church. Some people hate it. Thinking that the church is just another money-making scheme, and unfortunately there are plenty of those, for the the staff and the pastors to to attain some kind of a a big bank account and, and a big notoriety out in the culture. That's just a small portion of people, though. Others view the church as a helpful resource to the community that we're really no different than a food bank or a homeless shelter. We we help those in need. We feed those who are hungry. We give free counseling and, and people can come and talk to us anytime that they need us. And still others see the group, the church, as a group of hypocrites. People who stand, the pastor, stand on a Sunday morning telling you not to do something, and the pastor goes home and does the exact same thing that he's telling people not to do, and they see the church is just full of hypocrites. And unfortunately, the gospel has not been preached enough to the point where the opposite of the gospel has been preached, so where people are weighed down with the burden of trying to be perfect, and this is what people who often give up on the church, they don't understand the gospel fully because they haven't heard it preached correctly. And so they leave way down with more and more things that they have to do to please God. And that's not the gospel. So though outside the church, there's a variety of opinions. What about people inside the church? What about believers? If you're a Christian, you ought to know what the church is and what the church does. First and foremost, it is the best way to spread the message of the gospel to the entire world. Jesus did not come to establish a parachurch ministry. Jesus did not come to establish traveling evangelists. Jesus did not come to establish a Bible study that meets at Panera with your best friends. Those things are good. Those things are are helpful. They're wonderful, but they're, they're not the church. They're not why Jesus came, and they're not what Jesus established. I may have told this story before, but I was involved in a church. I was on staff at a church that sent Um, about a dozen college students to China. And they went for a week or two, and they did evangelism to university students on the streets. And so they prepared for months, and they studied, and they raised money, and they tried to learn a few words in Mandarin, and they, they, they did all of those things that you do when you go on a mission trip. You are focused on this trip. And so they land, they get out, and almost immediately getting to this college town, they're able to share the gospel with people. And people are receptive. People heard the gospel, and a few even came to know Christ. And so this trip was wonderful. They came back, all these college students came back, and they they shared to the church how wonderful it was and how somebody came to know Christ, and, and it was worth every penny that the church helped them raise. But about six months later, something happened. The leader of this college ministry trip got an email from one of the students in China who came to know Christ And the student says this, where are you? What do we do now? They parachuted in, shared the gospel, went back home. Where's the connection? As well-intentioned as this group was, they never thought about what to do when someone actually finally comes to know Christ. What do we do next? Where do we go? Where do we send them? They were prepared to engage people, to defend their faith, to share the gospel. But what happens next? these new Christians in China were starving spiritually. It's not like they have churches on every corner. What happens now? Now most of us have, have witnessed and we've seen people in the church and we've, we've seen this happen where people come to know Christ through the ministry of the local church. We seen it in our kids' ministry, we see it in our student ministry, hopefully we see it with adults. We, we, we prepare them to understand what the church is so they, they've got this foundation, this groundwork And unlike those new Christian uh, converts in China, the church is a place that immediately people can jump in and, and find discipleship and teaching and places to serve. This is the story of many of us. We came to know Christ through the ministry of the local church. Have you ever thought about your history? If you came to know Christ, especially at a younger age, were you left to fend for yourself? Or did you have those faithful teachers year in and year out teaching you the word of God? Those faithful Sunday school teachers, those, those, those wonderful ladies and, and gentlemen that, that, grew up, that I grew up with that called me during the week to ask how I was doing. Who scheduled events for our classes and our groups to meet so that we could grow in our relationships with one another. So you had a built-in structure that was designed for your good. Now, I'm not saying these parachurch ministries are bad. And in fact, they serve purposes. They, they can focus on one thing where churches can't. They, they can say, we're a collegiate ministry, so we're going to minister to 18 to 22-year-olds, and so we're going to get on the campus of a, of a university or a college, and we're going to share the gospel with them, and we're going to disciple them, and it's wonderful. Because the churches can't really do that. We don't have the manpower to be on every college campus and to have people every single day working with students. You think about groups like Campus Crusade or Crew as they're now known. They're focused on evangelism. Wycliffe Bible Translators put the Bible in every language. Countless pro-life groups work to stop infanticide. Campus ministries can be found in every university and they can connect in ways that we can't as the local church. Great things. But they are not the local church. They are not a local congregation of believers. These are ministries designed to step in where the church may need some help. But unfortunately, some have looked to these ministries or evangelists or podcast preachers or online churches as some way to fill the hole in their lives so that they can say, eh, the local assembly, I don't need to do this. Even those who, aren't, who are actively involved in the church have been known to downplay the importance of this, of the activity of the local church. For Catholics, the, the Second Vatican Council, which is a, a very highly respected document uh, uh, that they produced, they recognize that adults are not required to participate in the local church for salvation. Now we would say amen to that, we agree with them on that. The Protestants ha- have said for, for 500 years, we've rightly stressed salvation by faith alone. But we often end up at the same point as the Second Vatican Council, don't we? The church attendance, membership, participation, giving, all of those things, they really don't matter that much. But far more than what the Vatican Council says or what I say or what even you say, what does the Bible say? What does God say about his church? In 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives the qualifications for an elder, and then he follows that up with the qualifications for a deacon. But then notice what he says. In verses 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Not only does Paul give us guidelines for how we are to pick our leaders and our servants, the deacons, Paul says that the church order matters just as much. If I can't get to you soon, I want to write this letter to you so that you know how to operate, so that you're not lost. And then he makes the statement that those things were written to keep order in the church. Paul couldn't be everywhere all the time. So he writes these letters to the churches to ensure that they had the correct order. Why? Because the church is a display of the glory of God. Have you ever thought about that's what we do here every Sunday? We are a display of God's glory. This is not an optional thing. This is not something that we can just tack on to the end of our lives. This is a display of the glory of the Creator. In Acts 20, We see Paul speaking to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He he speaks of his trials and how he never backed down when he preached the gospel. And he said his only concern was finishing his ministry well. And then he says in Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among, you, uh, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's charging the leaders to care for the church. Why? To watch over the people. But the big question is, why would he ask this? Because false teachers will come into the church like wolves, and the teachers, the leaders, the elders, the shepherds, the pastors, those are the ones that you have called as a local church, that God has given the ability to do this, are there to protect you from those fierce wolves. And like a good shepherd, to take the staff, the sword, and to knock those wolves down. And to protect the church. Paul was concerned about the health of local Churches in 1st Corinthians 12 Paul talks about how the body is made up of many members some are hands some are ears some are eyes But after all of that he says this beginning in verse 27 Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it And God has appointed in the church first Apostles second prophets third teachers then miracles then gifts of healing helping administer administrating and various kinds of tongues Are all Apostles are all prophets are all teachers do all work miracles Paul under the authority of the Holy Spirit tells the church in Corinth that there were apostles and prophets and teachers in the church but there were also people with gifts of administration and helping. This assumes and we can assuming is not always good but we can assume here that based on what Paul is saying is that there is a structure that the elders have been called to lead the church, to guide the church, to shepherd the church, and then everybody else kind of enacts what the elders have kind of led the church to do based on what they've seen in scripture. This is more than a group of believers who sit around a table every week at Denny's and eat lunch. Good things, but it's not the church. In the same vein, Paul writes in Colossians 2, Though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul is pleased that they are functioning well, that the church is orderly, and again, I'm not trying to bury you with verse after verse, we could go further. I'm not trying to bury you with all these biblical references and just start spitting them out. No. But what I'm saying is, I'm trying to hope to give you a, a picture that the New Testament is very clear on what the local church is. God has given us a very clear understanding of what the church is. But we have our own opinions. One of the things that you'll find in almost any church, at least in the United States, and I'm not certain in other places, but because of our history as a people, you'll find yourself dealing with a lot of individualism. And and, and again, I'm not making a political statement here, so don't read into what I'm saying. I'm I'm not trying to become a Marxist, by the way. But what I am saying is that, that there is such a focus on the individual that we often forget about the corporate church. We forget about the bigger body. Think about how most people explain how you become a Christian. You need to ask Jesus into your heart. You need to make Jesus the Lord of your life and your own personal Savior. And that fits in with kind of our idea of culture and our idea of of how the world operates. Nobody tells me what to do because I'm an American, right? We, We fight that. But to the people who are reading these letters to the church... To those who were getting these letters from the Apostle Paul, that was foreign to them. Because they weren't just called as lone believers, as individual believers to come to know Christ. They were called to know Christ and then come together as a people. See, there's simply no way to claim Christianity as your own while at the same time separating yourselves from the people of God and the church that he's established. It's fashionable to say this, to say that you don't need the church to be a Christian, and that's true. You can repent of your sins without being part of a local church, but what kind of faith is it if you begin your faith in disobedience and disrespect to what Jesus has established and what Jesus has said? You say, well, wait a minute. The Bible tells the gospel and that we need to repent and that we need to trust, and it's just me and God, right? And I would say this, is that how God has operated through Scripture? In Genesis, God didn't just save Moses. He saved many families. In Exodus, God just didn't deal with just Moses. He dealt with the entire nation of Israel, 12 tribes, hundreds of thousands of people, but unified under one banner. In the Old Testament, we see Israel called, listen to this, God's son, his wife, and his flock. Does that sound familiar to you? It's the church that is laying the foundation for what the church would become. They're familiar words because we use those words. We talk about the church as a flock, the pastors and elders as shepherds. The Hebrew word for assembly in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for assembly is essentially the same word that we use for church in the Greek New Testament. Some will say, well, that's the Old Testament. They're different from us. They're thousands of years. They're they're Middle Eastern and, and even more Asian than we are. And I'd say, don't be so quick to see how God worked with people in the Old Testament to throw out the fact that there are very many similarities between Israel and the church. In Galatians 6, Paul calls Christians in the Galatian church the Israel of God. Now, what he's saying is that all Christians, not just those in Galatia, are part of the Israel of God. There is a clear connection happening here. But even with all the biblical evidence showing how God works with groups of people, there are still some who would stand firm and dig their heels in and say, nope, still doesn't matter. They're spiritual. I can worship God anywhere I am, which is true. Our whole lives should be an act of worship. They say, I, 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 I stay home on Sunday mornings, and we, we do family Bible study. And that's good to do, but it's missing the point. Being part of a church does matter. Mark, Mark Dever, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist, says this, just because a matter is not essential for salvation does not mean that it's not important or that it is not necessary for obedience. The color of the church signs is not essential for Christian salvation, nor is a believer's baptism. But everyone would agree that these matters vary greatly in importance. I've, I've heard this, I've heard that people say that if something doesn't pertain to salvation, if something is not essentially, or a part of the essential gospel message, then it's really not that important at all. And I've, and I've made it my, my aim to, to talk about those tiers of theological differences to say that those third tier and second tier issues, those non-essential issues, they are important, but they're not something that we break fellowship over. I, You and I, can we can argue about end times views, and I'm not splitting the fellowship over that. That said, that doesn't mean it's not important. The color of the carpet, honestly, not important. How your faith is in baptism, that's important. And this is what, what I'm saying is that, that, that all of these things that we do, while they're not essential to be saved, the, the communion that we take, it's not an essential thing for your salvation. When we get baptized, that is not an essential thing for your salvation. But it's still important. Being part of a local gathering is not essential for your salvation. But my goodness, if Jesus commanded it, Paul through the Holy Spirit tells us to do it, we better do it. We have no reason not to. But many people don't see the necessity of the blessing of being part of a local assembly. The doctrine of the local church to many is decoration. It's optional. You know what, we're going to go to this church or we're going to go to this church because we really like the music, we really like the preaching, we, a lot of kids stuff, a lot of youth stuff. And so we're going to go there. Until the things happen that we don't like and then we're going to leave. It's optional. We often categorize these theological issues into one of two camps. Either something is essential or it's not important. And that's really a tendency that we have. Because there are many things that are not essential but are important to God and his people. John, John Stott, he's uh, passed away some time ago, but he was a, a faithful Anglican pastor. And he says this about the importance of the church. The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. The reason why we're doing this series, kind of breaking into a a normal preaching series, the reason why we're doing this and looking at the doctrine of the church, the marks of a healthy church and what membership looks like is not to draw people into our church. This is exactly the opposite way. This is the the way that you push people out of the church, not intentionally, but this is the way people get fed up with the pastor, because drawing lines, right, and people leave, so this is not a a seeker-friendly sermon. But it's it's, it's necessary. It's important. We all need a reminder of who we are and what God has called us to be and to do. The study of the church is essential, not because it brings us to salvation, but because it colors what we believe about salvation. What we believe about the local church tells the world, tells everybody outside what we believe about the gospel. This really does. Because if we've been changed by the gospel, We've also been called to assemble together and to unite with one another. Wrong teaching about the church and wrong practices within the church hide the gospel while good teaching and good practices shine a light on it. One can be a Christian without belonging to a church, but the gospel is obscured, it's blurry, it's incomplete. But a correct biblical understanding of the church shines a bright light directly onto the gospel. The question in conclusion is why would anyone choose to ignore the blessing of God found in his church? It is in the local church, just as in the assembly in the Old Testament, that the people of God come together to receive a taste of glory that awaits the people of God. This is why we gather, because one day we will all gather together at the foot of Jesus Christ, right? We we all gather, and this is a practice. This is our, our rehearsal for eternity, But many people ignore this. Many people who've converted to Christianity have chosen to separate themselves from the local church instead opting for something else to fill the void. But I can tell you this, that you can't fill the the void that not being part of a local church creates with a Bible study, with a parachurch ministry, with your phone or with a video screen. It can't be done so the question that always comes to my mind when, when I talk to believers who are vocally divorced from the local church, I see this. If you came to me and said, hey, Ryan, man, I love you, but man, I really don't like your wife at all. Now it would be reversed, but, but just for illustration purposes. I'd say, well, you really don't love me then. Because if you don't like my wife, then you must not love me because we are one. We are inseparable. We are united together. 1 John 4.20 says this, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And you say, well, I can test myself. No, you can't. How do I know that? The heart is deceitfully wicked. You try testing yourself, you're going to lie to yourself all the time. So you say, well, how do we do this? How do we test ourselves? Sunday mornings, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, throughout the week as we meet, the church is where we test ourselves. God has given us this as a gift. It's not just something we choose to do. This is a gift that God has given to us so that we would grow, that we would test ourselves, that we would have protection against falling into all sorts of terrible ideas and terrible doctrine. Another illustration to maybe help you think through this, if we went to a bowling alley and they had combined all the lanes into one giant lane, right? So the lane is 100 feet wide, but there's these giant gutters on the side. Some of us are gonna throw the ball in the gutter, not on purpose, but we're gonna end up throwing it in the gutter, right? Some of us are gonna go this way, some of us are gonna go this way, some may be straight, some may be kind of going in and out. And if we don't have protection with the, what do you call those, the bumpers, the bumpers. If we don't have the bumpers there to protect us, there's nothing to push us back to the center, is it? And so the church exists to glorify God, but to protect you from going off into bad doctrine. The church exists to protect you from wolves coming in to attack you and to sway you to leave the faith. The church protects you from deconstructing your faith so much that you have no faith left at all. The church protects you for that. This is where we find our testing ground. This is who gives us our tests. It's each other. Church, don't be swayed by the trendy movements that tell you that the local church is unrelevant or unnecessary. Examine the Bible to see whether God has a plan and purpose for the local church. And I can tell you this, if you look through the scriptures and you pour over the text, you will see that the local church is essential. That the local church has always been essential. That the local church has been the sending agency. We give money to the Southern Baptist Convention, but the reality is is that it is our responsibility to send out missionaries and church planters and evangelists. And it's our duty to go out into the world and share the gospel with people around us. This is the duty of the local church gathered together for our good and for God's glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the church.